Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would hear our prayer and that you would indeed give ear to our pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, pray that you would answer us in your righteousness. You would respond. Help us to remember the days of old and to ponder the work of your hands. Let us hear of your steadfast love this morning, for in you we trust. Make us know the way that we should go, for to you we lift up our souls. Father, that is our desire. As we look at your word and as we consider, we ask that you would make much of Christ and that you would indeed lift up our very souls. So do this work, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we begin our, uh, what we call our church improvement series. Um, and as we do here at River Hills each year, uh, we, the elders uh, will preach through a group of sermons where we'll focus on one or more of our church's core val- 10 core values. And this year, uh, as we considered what we should uh, consider in the, the core values, um, as we discussed as elders, uh, I thought it would be helpful for us to emphasize prayer. And so we're going to focus in on the, that one core value over the next four weeks. As I've mentioned, over the last eight months or so, I've been both encouraged and uh, convicted that I don't pray as I ought to. And I think a lot of us feel that way. A lot of Christians feel that same pressure. Um, it isn't as if we don't pray, uh, but prayer doesn't seem to be a vital part of what we do. We pray in our growth groups, we pray in our family devotions, we pray during our times of of personal devotions, at least I hope that we're doing all of those things. We pray before the church service, we pray in the church service. The question uh, that comes to mind is how different would any of those activities be if we completely removed prayer? Would there be any noticeable change? Our third core value reads this way. It says that we believe that without Christ, we can do nothing. Therefore, growing devotion to both corporate and personal prayer is vital. So do we believe that, that it's it's so vital and that that we can do nothing apart from Christ? Let me tell you, I'll just say this right away, that over the next four weeks, I don't want to lay out a guilt trip before you about how horrible and ungrateful we all are for not praying as much as we do. We already feel that, right? We already feel that, that pressure. But instead, I, I, my hope is that um, our time together looking and considering prayer will be a time of encouragement in the life of prayer, both as we consider both corporate and individual prayer. Instead of actually adding more burden to us, uh, a burden of prayer or prayerlessness onto your life, my hope is that, that we will be pressed toward our Savior, the one who brings us life, the one who restores, the one who takes the weight of our burden off of our shoulders as he places it upon himself. And so over these next few weeks, uh, four weeks in total, we'll be looking at four prayers that are recorded in the scriptures. And it's my hope that these prayers will help us in our life of prayer here as a church. So this morning, as we uh, consider uh, Paul's words to the Ephesian believers, to the church there, uh, we, we actually find that this is the second prayer that Paul has offered that's recorded in the book of Ephesians. And if you aren't there already, I would encourage you to open up uh, your Bible 
to uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. And if you need, if you don't have a Bible with you, you know, the Bible's underneath. Uh, as uh, Lacey said, this passage can be found on page 977. So I encourage you to open up to there. And where, by the time we get to this prayer in chapter 3, um, to give just a little bit of context, uh, we see that Paul has just described in chapter 2 the message of the gospel in both beautiful and succinct language. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul says that, that we were dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. And it's through God's gift of grace that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us and brought a, bought us new life. So that's the gospel, right? And, and so he's speaking to those who he's just shared the gospel with. And then he explains how the Ephesian believers were no longer far from God as they had once been. He says that God has made them into a new people. No longer were they Jews and Gentiles who had become Christians. They weren't Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians. He's said that they're now a new people. God has made them into a new people, though no longer who they once were. So the distinction that had once divided them from God was gone, and the distinction that divided them from each other was also broken down. And so we stop there and we pause and we think these are familiar passages to us. These are familiar truths to us. If you're a Christian, you know the gospel. But living our lives in a way that is consistent with our faith proves difficult on a day-to-day basis. And the reason is because our world is broken. We live in a world that's hostile toward God and toward God's people. We live in a world that where although Uh, our sins are forgiven, our sins are not obliterated. We still struggle with them. We still struggle in sin, and and we are still broken. It's not just the world. And our thoughts and our actions reveal that we're not really that different from the world and the world's values. We want to be. We strive to be. But so often we find our inclination is that we're not. And yet Paul it's going to tell us that there's a call upon our lives. Look at the call that, that Paul uh, puts on our lives. It, it, just after our passage, we look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, he's writing this from prison. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. That just seems completely overwhelming. How are we supposed to do that? I mean, Paul can say that, right? I mean, he was in prison for his faith. He was like a super Christian. But what about us? Paul gave up everything for Christ. But our lives, they don't seem to measure up to Paul's faith. And so this is often where discouragement sets in in the Christian life. This is where we feel the need to, to either give up or to double down in our efforts to live the Christian life. Right? When, when we say that, that this church improvement series is about prayer, I, I mean, I can just imagine the wheels spinning. Oh, I don't do this. I don't do this. Oh, I need to do this. I need to do this. It's not about doubling down. I, we just, it's not about trying harder. It's not really about managing our time better. It's not about getting our priorities in order or being more disciplined. I think that's our temptation to think that that is the key 
to living the Christian life. That's, that's the key to, to becoming a faithful, praying church. But I think in our text this morning, Paul offers something much more amazing, much, much better, more beautiful, more sustainable. And I think much more in keeping with the gospel itself. Instead of looking into ourselves and within ourselves, he urges us to turn toward our Savior. Christ has redeemed and he's transformed his people. He's transformed us. But instead of trying to pursue a godly life in our own strength, we need to be strengthened by Christ. We need to be strengthened in an ongoing way to faithfully live our lives in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. What we find in Paul's prayer here that we'll look at, what we're looking at today for these believers in in Ephesus is a prayer for the whole church. It's for the entire church. It's a prayer that's appropriate for every single believer. It's a prayer that's appropriate for brand new believers. Also for mature and seasoned saints. It's a prayer that we can pray and that we should pray for one another. It's a prayer that we can and should pray for ourselves. And so as we look at this prayer this morning, we need to be reminded that, that we have a need. We have a need to be continually strengthened by Christ to faithfully live our lives. And so that's really, I think, the content of this prayer. And so we're going to see in it, uh, there's five points. There's really three points to the prayer, but the first we're going to begin with an attitude. And so we, we need to, to continually be strengthened by Christ to faithfully live our lives. And therefore, we should pray with humility. We pray with humility. Paul says in verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every, fa- uh, every family in heaven and on earth is named. If you look actually at the, the very first verse of chapter 3, Paul begins with the same words. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship, and then he kind of gets distracted. It's almost like he began the prayer, but then kind of went off on a side note, talking about his own ministry to the Gentile believers. But now he gets back to the prayer. I mean, think about it. What's Paul saying? He's saying, for this reason, this is the reason why I bow my knees. We don't really pick it up uh, in the English, but when Paul says that he bows his knees, it's pretty significant. At that time in the world, normally when you would pray, you would pray standing up. And we we see this when Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee who stood uh, before everybody else saying, I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there. And the tax collector stood far off. We see standing in prayer is, is very common during this time. But now Paul says, this is the reason I bow my knees The posture of kneeling communicated a humble submission and worship that was really more in keeping with utter desperation. And I think that's exactly what Paul wants to communicate here. Utter desperation. Not despair, but a need. Utter desperation for God to be the one who would answer this prayer. It's a sign of of utter uh, desperation. It's also a sign of utter submission and worship. Right, Paul himself knelt in prayer on the road. Uh, we see Paul, right, in his, uh, 
when he's changed, uh, when, when Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus, we, we see uh, the posture that at the very end, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Kneeling is a posture of worship. And so now Paul bows his knees before whom? He says the Father. The Father in whom every father, actually the, the, the words there are very similar and I won't get off too much because we don't have time to go through every word here, but this is very interesting what Paul is saying here. He's saying, uh, I, I bow my knees before the Father, Pater, who is the creator of all uh, living beings, or the one who created every, it's really family is how we translate it, but it's Patria. It's kind of like the feminine form of Father in heaven and earth is named. He's the one who's over everyone. He's the sovereign Father of every family. He is the Father of fathers. And as Paul has said just previously, he is the father of a new people, new creation, the new Christians. So what we find is that Paul is bowing his knee in rightful acknowledgement of who God is, the one who's sovereign over all things, the one who saves, the one who forms and creates. Often, I think we operate uh, within our own lives as if God the Father is someone that we occasionally call, right? Maybe for advice, maybe on a hard problem, or somebody maybe to get us out of a really bad situation, right? We'll, we'll pray in that time. Uh, but, but we don't really operate as if God is genuinely sovereign over everything. Uh, one, I haven't seen this in a long time, but there was a bumper sticker that said, God is my co-pilot. I feel like theologically that's like left the majority of our Christian culture. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time, but right, think about that. That's, that's kind of how we treat God sometimes, is he is our co-pilot. But instead, God's not our co-pilot. Right? It's not even that he created the plane, or that he is the pilot. He is the pilot, but he's also the pilot who created the plane, who's over the weather, who created physics, and, and air pressure to keep the plane in the air. God is over everything. And so when Paul bows the knee, he is rightfully acknowledging who God the Father is. He knows the circumstances of our lives. He knows our limitations. And he is the one that we humbly kneel before. And so as we come to God to be strengthened by Christ, to faithfully live our lives, we pray with humility and, and we pray for God's strengthening power. As we move in to verse 16, we see Paul praying for that power. It's a power that if, if we look back in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, Paul, I said this was the second prayer. In Paul's first prayer, Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers to know the greatness of God's power. But now he prays that they would receive a measure of that power. And so verse 16, he says uh, of uh, chapter, uh, of, our, of our passage, chapter 3, he says that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so Paul prays for strength, prays for Christ's strength. And, and it's, a, it's a prayer that's broken up into two parts. It's grounded, or it's prayed according to the riches of his glory. In other words, it's, it's on the basis, Paul's basis for appealing to God is God's glory. 
He doesn't say, according to my own obedience, uh, can you answer this prayer? Or according to the sincerity of my prayer, or even uh, that I'm really, really needy. But he appeals to God according to God's glory. It's grounded in the riches of his glory. The one who gives according to his riches, one commentator said, is one who gives on the scale and in the style of the wealth of his glory. Think about that. Paul is asking God to give both on the scale and in the style of the wealth of his glory. There's no one more glorious than God. And in that greatness, he is asking that God, because of that, not only would he give, but he would give abundantly. He asked God to give freely and abundantly strength. The second part of Paul's prayer for strength here refers to, to the work of the Holy Spirit in where? In, our, in the Holy Spirit's work in our inner being. This is similar wording that we find in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Where Paul writes, For we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So what's going on in the outer self? Well, it's in in the letter to the Corinthians. Paul's saying, we may be dying. We may be weakening. We may be growing old. But there's an inner strengthening that's happening, that God is working by the Holy Spirit in us. And that's what Paul is asking for every believer They would be strengthened both uh, in the abundance of God's glory, in their inner being, the very center of who they are. Even though our outer self might waste away, our inner self is being renewed by the Spirit. And so the result of this strengthening, he says, is so that Christ would dwell in us richly, that that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And since Christ dwells in the hearts of believers from the moment of conversion, this is really more of a clarification. We know that it's not referring to the, the Spirit coming in. Right? The Spirit's there. He's at work. But it's referring to living under the indwelling influence of the continual presence of the Spirit, of, of Christ in us. And so he says, by faith, what he means is that we would live our lives by faith, trusting in the one who dwells within us. It means that that which this indwelling is purchased is through faith. It's it's an active uh, faith of the believer in the finished perfect work of Christ, uh, perfect work of Christ. So you think about it, it's trusting Christ to do what he said he was going to do, to do what he says he will do. It's listening uh, to the spirit at work in us. And so the result of this strengthening is that Christ would dwell in our hearts more fully. And so we've got this image of of Paul. He's praying for the Ephesian believers in a way that we should pray, with humility. Praying for God's strengthening power. But that strength is not just to do whatever we want. There's actually an aim to where Paul is going here. And that's what we find in the second half of verse 17. It's, It's a prayer for strength to understand or to comprehend Christ's love. So pray with humility, pray for God's strengthening power, and pray for strength to understand Christ's love. And if we pick up then at the second half of verse 17, he says that that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend 
with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. So Paul then describes for us what the love of Christ looks like. In order to do so, Paul says, remember that that's where you're rooted and grounded. The foundation that Paul prays for is that they would be, that we would be, really, uh, rooted and grounded in Christ's love. It's these two metaphors that he brought together even in Ephesians. I remember when Daniel preached about it, these two metaphors of of both a building as well as uh, agriculture. The structure of, of our lives is to have a solid foundation of deep roots of love, of the love of God. And it's this love, the love of God, uh, not the love for each other, but the love that God has for us that provides the basis and motivation for, for our whole lives. It's the basis and motivation for the strength that, that enables us as Christians to love others, to live for God. Thinking about that foundation of love, uh, Pastor Kent Hughes made this connection that I thought was helpful to our foundation in Christ's love and the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians. He says, love is the key. Love is, uh, joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetting. Self-control is love's holding the reins. There are no fruits of the Spirit without love. This is both our foundation and it's what Paul wants us to know. In fact, it's what he prays that we will grow in. Strength to understand Christ's love and and he gives this multi-dimensional description of his love. Breadth, length, height, depth. What's he talking about? He's talking about a physical structure but it's one that's beyond, uh, the wording is, is beyond what we can imagine. And so breadth or width, um, once again, uh, I'm borrowing from Kent Hughes. He says, imagine a, a love that is wide enough to embrace the whole world. A love that is long enough uh, that it will last forever. A love that is high enough to take sinners to heaven and a love that is deep enough to take Christ to the very depths to reach the lowest of sinners. It's that same love that we see reflected elsewhere in Scripture that Paul mentions even in in places like Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Romans 8, 35, where he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he lists, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long and we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And no, in, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul prays that we would know the vastness of Christ's love. Praise that we would have strength to understand that this love surpasses, as he says, all knowledge. So 
we, we, Paul is asking that they would know, that we would know, a love which surpasses all knowledge. Is Paul asking the impossible? Perhaps in one sense, maybe, yes. But what is he getting at? He wants us to understand. He wants them to understand something that because of its immensity, it really is beyond grasping. But he's not trying to discourage us uh, as we attempt to understand this un- incomprehensible thing, but he wants to encourage us to meditate on the love of Christ that's so vast that we could never fully take it in. We could never fully comprehend it. doesn't ma- mean that we shouldn't. In fact, he wants us to. It's not something that we can fully grasp, but it is something that we can experience. And so he says he wants us to know. And that word for know is one of very much experience. And so Paul is asking that we would not only know cognitively in our minds, but also experience and know with our hearts the love of Christ. It's greater than any of our understanding. For those who have not experienced this love, one author writes, no words will suffice. For those who have experienced, no words will quite do. I think that's helpful, right? So if if you don't know Christ, there's really no words to fully describe his love. And for those of us who do know Christ and have experienced it, there's no words that we could find that would really explain it. It's just too vast. It's too wonderful. We will not really live as God's children, as faithful, uh, holy children, until we really first and foremost know that we are his beloved. We won't treat our neighbors as we ought to with mercy until we understand Christ's mercy. We really won't know anything about uh, the way that we're to love others until we know the love of Christ. We won't know anything about Christianity until we know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. This isn't something that we fabricate. This is a God who Paul wants us to work in us that we would know him. And so as we continue to move through the prayer, right, we, we see that Paul is praying for continual strengthening by Christ to faithfully live our lives as we pray with humility and we Uh, Pray for God's strengthening power, a a strength to understand Christ's love. And then in our last request for the prayer is to pray for for God's fullness. And that's in the last half of verse 19, where he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And really, we could understand this as a summary of everything that Paul has prayed up to now. It's actually the climactic purpose for what we'll get to in the next verses as well. But he's praying. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean? What is Paul mentioning? Well, what is Paul asking of God? Well, in the Old Testament, God's presence filled the tabernacle. and It filled the temple. But what does he say of us? Ephesians 2.21, he says that that now the people of God are a holy temple in the Lord. We are God's temple. God now resides in and with us. And so for that reason, that we have immediate access. He's always present with us. And so what Paul is praying for is that 
God would fill us up with more of himself. Imagine somehow that you have your toes in the ocean and you've got a bucket in your hand, a bucket that you've been filling full of sand and other, uh, other seashells that you have been collecting. And as you set it down, a wave washes over and fills the bucket full of water. You look down and now it's filled to the very top and you see seawater and you see all the shells that you collected and you see the sand that you had put in there. In some ways, what, what Paul is praying for in, and up to now is, is that they would be, what? That they would be strengthened in his power and their inner beating according to the riches of his glory to be grounded and strengthened in his limited love, uh, unlimited love, uh, limitless love. Get that straight. And they may be filled with more and more of him. In other words, be filled less of ourselves. What, what Paul is praying for is for a bigger bucket. And, and that we would empty the bucket of the things that are not of God. Right? He's praying, as he prays that we would be strengthened in our inner being, he wants us to be able to grow, to take more of who he is. As we're grounded and strengthened in his limitless love, it's, it's to take out the things that are not of God, to be filled with the, the glory and the joys of who Christ is so that we might be filled with more and more of him. That's really Paul's prayer. When we think about that prayer, that's a prayer for joy. That's a prayer for hope. That's a prayer for celebration. That's a prayer that we should be praying for ourselves and for one another, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Now, will our bucket ever fill the fullness of the ocean? No, it won't. Will we ever understand the fullness of the ocean? We won't. But we should still contemplate the fullness of the ocean, and we should still seek to be filled more and more by who he is. The metaphor is limited, but I think it's helpful. This is the only way that we're able to live our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of the call in which God has placed on our lives. This is why Paul prays with, and as we see in these last verses, an expectant hope. Paul prays with expectant hope. And I love this. This is a doxology, and this is how we will end our service. But listen to these words with verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within, him, within us. To him be glory in, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The word Paul uses to translate that God is able, right, to him who is able to do far more abundantly, that's the word for powerful. We know it, right? It's dunamai. Um, or wait, yeah, dunamai is, is the Greek word. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you that it's related to dynamite, but it is, right? But the, it's not like it's an explosive power, but it is power. It's, it's in a, God is able. And if we think, well, yeah, he is able, but how able is he? Well, far more abundantly than we could ask or imagine. And that word that's used there isn't really used elsewhere in the New Testament. It, it's a word that, that just means beyond measure. So in other words, 
God is, is powerful, is able to do more than we could ever think. Or I think the NIV translates it, imagine. God is powerful enough to do more. So if there's anything that you can imagine God doing, well, he's actually more powerful than that. And so when we hold back our prayers because we think, I don't know if God could do that. But we don't really understand God. And so in that sense, we need to be filled more with who he is. We pray for a loved one. We think, oh, I don't know if God would answer that. Do we somehow think that we love our loved one more than God does? Remember, it's a limitless love. There's nothing that you or I can think of that God can't or isn't able to do. There's no love that we can feel on in our own selves that isn't exponentially larger in Christ. And so it's interesting that he says that he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work in him. No, that's, that's not what it says. According to the power at work within us. With, within us, well, the power Paul is pointing to is the same power that he pointed to in chapter 1. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And he's saying that's, that same power is at work in us. Not because we're so amazing and so strong, but because Christ resides in us. The Spirit resides in us. And so when you are seeking to live faithfully for the Lord and you feel like you don't have the strength to do it, you're right. You don't have the strength to do it. None of us have the strength to do it in ourselves. And yet, the Spirit is at work in us. The reason we doubt God's ability to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think is that we underestimate who is in us, the power that's in us. Right? We, we somehow view it as this little nine-volt battery of spiritual power inside of us. But instead, it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead now indwells in us by the presence of his spirit. And so what ought we to do? As we think about the Christian life, as we pray for ourselves and for one, of the, one another, we ought to anticipate and ask that God will overcome big sins in our lives, sins that we struggle with, that God will change bad habits in our lives and make us into more faithful followers of Christ. Not because we can do it by pulling up our bootstraps, but because he is faithful. The Christian life, it's impossible apart from Christ. And we shouldn't pretend that it is possible. We shouldn't strive with our own energy. But instead, we should turn to Christ. And that, I believe, is the only way that Christ receives the glory. And that's the end of what Paul says. The power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. You see, when we try to do things in our own strength, it's almost as if we're saying, God, we don't need you. I can handle this. 
one of the reasons why we should pray is because right, he's there. He's at work in us and he loves us and he wants to be at work in us. We can try all we want, but just as when Paul was going to the road to Damascus, what did Jesus say to him? Stop kicking against the goads. Stop, stop pushing against me. And in the same way, when we go to the Lord in prayer, we're going with God as opposed to against God. He is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And he gets the glory then. So I think about even this last week as we prayed for Shepherd. And if you're not on the prayer list, if you don't know what's happened, um, on Christmas Eve, uh, a member of our church family, their son, uh, had a seizure, was unresponsive, taken to the hospital. And uh, they thought he got better and so brought him home, but then needed to go back to the hospital. And it had been really kind of touch and go all week. And as I said, if you're on the prayer list, you, you saw those updates. But last night, got the final update from his dad. And he was, felt overwhelmed with gladness at our church family for praying for their son. Because God had answered so many of the prayers. And he wasn't saying, oh, look how strong my son is. Look how great he is. Glory goes to God because he worked. And the joy is shared by us who have prayed for him. God is glorified when we go to him in prayer. When we come to him in humility, knowing that we can't save this child. Going to him in strength when we feel weak, weak enough to believe that he can answer those prayers. Asking for us to understand the depth of his love a love that would, would cause us to pray over and over for this child and for the feeling of joy that we, I know I received hearing the good news that he was doing better. Not out of the woods. We need to continue to pray for him. And so as believers, I think we pray with expectant joy because we have a good God. And so this month, as we talk about prayer, as these next weeks, we're, we're going to talk about different prayers and how they touch different aspects of our lives. I hope that you're encouraged to turn to him expectantly, not as a burden for you don't pray enough, but as a joy that, that prayer is. So let me close us now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are not worthy uh, to come before you, and yet you call us. You call us to pray out to you, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And so I pray that you would indeed give us eyes to see the glory of, of, the Christ, of Christ's uh, love, that you would give us uh, an ability to understand just how much that work uh, has transformed uh, us and, and how much you're doing in and through our world. I pray, Father, that you would help us to become a praying church. That even as we enter into the week of prayer, Father, that you would give us hearts of, of great expectation. Not because of what 
we would do, not because we are coming to you in prayer, but because you are a God who loves to listen to your people and to respond. And I pray that instead of feeling a burden of prayerlessness, that instead you would welcome us in and give us the joy of fellowship with you. I pray that you would give us an expectant hope that every time that we pray, that we would know that you are listening and that you are indeed able to do more than we can ask or imagine. And that your love for us is greater than we could ever know. So I pray that you would help all of these things to sink into our very hearts, that Christ might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.